Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Reg Grant. Reg has been the head strength and conditioning coach for the New York Rangers Hockey Club of the National Hockey League since 2002, and currently serves as the president of the Strength and Conditioning Association of Professional Hockey. Prior to his work in the National Hockey League, Reg served in the same capacity with Concordia University in Montreal and was also a lecturer in the exercise science department. Reggie's quiet and unassuming leadership in hockey have helped shape the profession in the sport over the course of the last 15 years. He has been involved in the transition into technology and more organized performance systems in the sport. And he leads by example through character and the care of his athletes. Reg is a dedicated father of three with his wife, Natalie. And one of the many reasons I've asked him on Leave Your Mark is because he has been able to navigate the difficult and demanding world of professional sport while continuing to be the father I know he strives to be. He is a good friend. Welcome, Reg. Thank you, Scotty. Good to have you, buddy. So I'm going to pitch the first question to you, which is actually, I didn't even realize this till tomorrow, uh, till this morning, but uh, it is the 17th anniversary of 9-11. Where were you and what were you doing on 9-11? I was in the uh, basement bowels of Concordia University's athletic complex, and a couple of people started tearing through the, uh, the medical room and the office and just saying something happened, something happened. And we all went upstairs to uh, the uh, athletics office, the main office, and had a five-inch by five-inch TV that we were looking at all these images on, which was incredibly surreal considering I've been able to uh, head down into Manhattan and see the location for real. But uh, I was in Concordia University at the time. Wow. It's probably a very big day down there today, a uh, very solemn day of uh, memories and remembering uh, the event. Um, did you ever actually go up to the top of those buildings prior to them coming down? No, I did not. Oh, okay. But you've been down to the museum since? Yeah, been down there. Yeah, pretty crazy. Well, listen, let's take a little ramble back in life. Um, you and I have known each other for a long time, but probably haven't even really talked that much about it. I know... Um, you know, you grew up in the Toronto area and, uh, what was life for Reg growing up? Um, wow. Uh, that is going back. So, um, I basically was in, uh, Whitby, Ontario, born in Scarborough, but I was raised in Whitby, Ontario. Um, a few NHL players came out of there and it is, uh, sort of a really big place now. Uh, every time I go back, um, what once was farms are now subdivisions. So it is sprawling from Toronto all the way out. Um, but that was it. I, you know, just played uh, sports in high school and uh, football, rugby, basketball. Um, I remember walking into the uh, guidance counselor's office and, and the question was posed, what do you want to do? And I knew I wanted to be involved in professional sports and just did not. And I knew this, I did not have the skill. It didn't matter what sport the skill wasn't there. Um, and so then I started down the path of, um, exercise science and athletic therapy and strength and conditioning. And, uh, that kind of lucky enough got me to where I am today. You were a QB, weren't you? Yeah, I, I kind of, I was a, when I started football in high school, I was a nose guard and a quarterback. And then that switched to a middle linebacker and a quarterback. So, um, I might not have been too intelligent about the whole process, 
getting beat up on one end and beating people up on the other. So uh, that was it. It was an interesting. <laughs> what uh, what inspired you uh, to go to Concordia? I don't think I ever asked you that question. Why 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 Concordia and why exercise science? Well, a lot of the people in the area actually that um, I knew that I worked with uh, in a you know the local restaurants and did different things um, went to McGill and some to Concordia. So there was probably a handful of uh, of guys that were friends of mine, and and they all went out to Montreal. Mm-hmm. So in my last year of high school, I was basically once a month getting in a car, driving the five five and a half hours to Montreal. So I was hooked after the first weekend trip. I was hooked, and uh, and I just proceeded to spend weekends after weekend that that last year of high school and and then that kind of put me at Concordia. The city has a way of uh, attracting the young mind uh, (laughs) for reasons we will not discuss on this podcast. (laughs) Definitely magnetic so just got to stay alert and alive that's it. (laughs) You grew up uh, with a father who uh, if I'm not mistaken was a principal or vice principal of the school correct and how did that affect you growing up that your dad was a teacher, that your dad was an educator? Was that hard on you or was it beneficial to you? Well, it was interesting because both my mom and dad started out and they were uh, phys ed teachers, both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both went on into administration in high schools. Um, so my dad um, started football program at, at one of the, the schools in the area. Um, in Pickering, Ontario, and was, you know, part of that development. And it was always athletics and, and uh, education. Um, the, the tough part, I guess, with it was uh, he knew everybody. So it didn't matter where I, where I was, what the classes were. He knew all the teachers um, and he knew all the coaches. So everybody sort of was looking at me and they knew me. And um, I guess there was a certain element of expectation in that because, you know, I was, I was his son, but, um, it was actually a, a great time. Uh, I tended to learn sort of how things worked, what the system was, um, and just being around athletics, uh, especially things like the rugby tours he used to run. He, he bring groups of kids, um, from high schools, uh, high school rugby teams to England all the time. Mm-hmm. So he did this for a number of years, uh, starting a, well, in the 80s, I guess, early 80s. So uh, it was a great time. I got to learn how things were when I was growing up. I was, you know, pretty much seven years old on the side of a rugby pitch, mm-hmm. watching him play, you know, men's league rugby. And, you know, so it's pretty much been around that my whole life. What was his greatest influence on the man that you are today in your viewpoint? probably the amount that he cares and puts other people forward. So it was, you know, in that role of being a principal, you know, how can he help kids get educated and um, not so much what is the right political thing to do. um, But if it made sense and it was the right thing to do, you did it and Mm -hmm. kind of worked through it. And it didn't matter the, the hurdles or the obstacles or the, the other political engine that might drive you a different way. If it was right for the kid and the student and the individual uh, you did it. And you move forward. Um, you, you had a much uh, younger brother than you that uh, you sort of were almost like a, an uncle to in some sense. What was that role for you? Was that a maturing role for you or a difficult role for you growing up? Well, that's an interesting point because when um, my younger brother, Kyle, who actually is a, was a pretty accomplished uh, wrestler himself and, and is now a police officer for mm-hmm. a number of years down in Guelph, um, I was on kind of on the way out of the house. That was around the time. It was kind of the middle to end of high school. Um, so there wasn't a lot of time that I was, that we were together and I was sort of a, a big brother and um, you know, he was really young and, and I was, you know, off playing sports and doing things. So I was pretty much on the way to Concordia through his development and, and out of the house. Mm, cool. So you, uh, you find yourself in Montreal going to university and, did you know you wanted to be an athletic therapist and a strength coach, or was that just something you sort of stumbled upon once you were at Concordia? Well, I knew I wanted to be in athletics, and I knew I wanted to find some element or way to get to professional sports. And that was something that um, it was what we knew. We saw it on TV. You know, you saw whether you watched, you know, CFL or NFL or NHL hockey, whatever it was, you you knew, like, that's where I wanted to go and be. And, um, 
I definitely knew I didn't have the skill. So when I was in that element, I would see all the different athletic events. I'd see the people on the sidelines that were taking care of people. Um, and it just sort of grew out of the program that I learned at Concordia. Uh, and interestingly enough, the entire drive was in athletic therapy. It was the entire sports medicine realm. Uh, and that was, you know, through you and through Scott, through Ron Rappel. And then it sort of shifted the, uh, the hobby of strength and conditioning, what was happening in the gym, what was happening with the uh, football team after practice and their prep and, you know, all of that, that hobby sort of took over and the shift kind of became more into how do I, you know, prepare and get these athletes resilient or ready for the stresses that they will come under, uh, as opposed to, well, you're hurt now, let's get you back. Mm -hmm. So the hobby kind of took over and became the profession. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you finished school and um, there was a period of time when you kind of call it um, questioned or were sort of not sure where things were headed. And then uh, there was a turn of events when you ended up in Toronto working for the Frappier uh, program. Talk about that a little bit, just sort of that, that turn of events in your life and um, sort of where that took you in, in life and what you learned from it. Well, whenever, and I imagine this is with most people, um, when you come out of sort of that athletic therapy or strength conditioning exercise science field, um, this is not a field where you walk out and somebody is handing you a chunk of money to work, you know, nine to five for 48, 52 hour, uh, weeks a year. Um, you have to go get it. It's something where, um, there's networking, there's volunteer, uh, there's a lot of work you do when you put in, um, that you just don't get paid for. You get paid a little bit and you have to have a drive and a passion to find those different things. Um, and that was my time to try and figure out my way, I guess, uh, try and see, you know, what, I, what was I really interested in? Um, I ended up at, at times I spent a few months at, uh, in Lenoxville, Quebec at, uh, Bishop's university. Um, and, you know, was involved with the rugby program out there and, and Steve King, who was a therapist. And you kind of saw people that were doing different, really serious clinical work in the osteo field, in the athletic therapy field. And you saw people that were in the performance field. And, uh, it was sort of an exploration along that path. And I, I don't even remember how it came to be, but, um, there was a, a guy named James Gattinger and, and he just somehow ended up out interviewing for a job in Scarborough, Ontario at uh, Frappier Acceleration, which is now Athletic Republic for, for those that see that name around. Um, and I went out and uh, it worked out. We were at a four ring complex and putting a gym in with a skating treadmill and a running treadmill. And we were doing high speed work with some of the Toronto Argonauts and we're doing other work with hockey players from the ages of eight all the way up. Um, and it was sort of, you know, just getting myself to the point where, you know what, this is something I want to do. And the transition really almost fully took hold from therapy to performance and, and everything kind of went into the realm of how are we preparing the athlete? How are we preparing the body? Um, I was exposed to technology that I hadn't seen before, uh, that I was learning my way through. And that is the whole world right now of maybe too much information. You know, <laughs> I listened to you talk with Matt Jordan the other day and, mm -hmm. um, you know, just because you can measure it doesn't mean you should. <laughs> you, make sure you have a, an effective thing that you can act upon. So that time, come. that time was interesting coming through, but uh, it really gave me a, a really snapshot into business because I was apparently running the business coming straight out of school <laughs> as, as well as, you know, doing all the performance work and everything. So sometimes uh, there's something to be said of just diving in the deep end of the pool and you got to swim. That's the deal. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about yourself um, during that time? That I didn't know a whole lot. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the things. I was incredibly energetic. I had a lot of passion about it. Um, I wanted to learn. I was, you know, I wanted people to get better. I was uh, taking some athletes that were young and some that were old and have since learned a lot more about the, uh, uh, the baseline development. I love listening to a guy like Stephen Norris about how that goes. I wish I knew those things back then. Um, but, you know, it, it is that element of sometimes you have to safely you know, take a plunge. And sometimes you might think that, um, you know, things aren't totally lined up. You don't have all the, you know, the, the T's crossed and the I's dotted, but 
if it's safe enough, you got to get in there and start working and you end up working your way through it. And after day one or two, you end up meeting a few people. And, you know, after a couple of weeks and months, you meet some more and things grow and your base level of knowledge improves. And all of a sudden you've got other people that are like, Hey, I can help and add this element to it. And, um, I guess that was the main thing that, you know what, you don't always have to see the path clearly from start to finish. Sometimes you just got to get involved and work hard. Mm. Was there ever, um, a point during the early years for you that you that you walked away from it or or almost gave gave up what you were going to do or were you always kind of steadfast to it yeah I don't think there was a an element of giving up I think anything that was kind of questionable or unknown was maybe me being unsure of the path because it doesn't matter what you do or how this goes along there's never complete clarity every time you you go into something it becomes good you're working well with it the confidence improves and then there's challenges and changes and then all of a sudden you can sit back and go all right well is this the right thing to do or how am am i going down the right path and you know how should i do it differently and then you turn around and you start looking at other people that are around you're like man really maybe I really don't know a lot here maybe I have to learn a little bit more um there was never a point at which I was you know going to change and become an accountant or go into business or any of that kind of stuff uh, away from the field it was a matter of where was my place in it and um I don't who knows where it's going to go I chose the path of being more involved with team related things where other people, you know, had the athletes, had all that stuff there, um, as opposed to, you know what, just give me my, give me my shingle and my place and put me up in a, in a building and I'm going to bring athletes in and train them as a private practice. I, I never went that way. And who knows, maybe one day I will, but, um, I've always been sort of the, down the team path, starting with the schools and, and going into, into teams. So anyway, I don't know if that makes sense, but what is, what is it about team that, uh, that you get joy from or, uh, that inspires you? Wow. Um, quite simply, it's seeing people as individuals and as a unit do something that they never thought possible, watching them step beyond themselves to something that was not possible. I was really fortunate enough, um, and this was sort of through probably the work that that you and, and Ron Rappel did when I was at Concordia, the connections that you gained um, through a guy named Gaetan Lefebvre with the Montreal Canadiens. I was fortunate enough to spend a few months as an intern there. And they hadn't had one before, so they were sort of, you know, all right, we're going to let somebody into the family here. We're going to let them behind the curtain and not really sure how that's going to go. So they just wanted to make sure I wouldn't screw anything up to some degree. And I remember we got into the playoffs playing the Boston Bruins. And Patrick Waugh had an acute appendicitis at the time. And um, it, it was an interesting study in pressure for those around him that were picking up the slack when, when he was away. And then he returned unexpectedly. Um, for those of you that don't know, when you get something like that as an acute appendicitis, usually surgery is the, the option that's gone. And for whatever reason, I, at this point, I don't even know, I wasn't involved in the conversations, but it, it, they didn't go that way. They treated it conservatively and he ended up recovering enough to come back and play during that playoff series. And I stood there and watched an entire professional hockey team in the Boston Bruins not come close to being able to overcome what was going on at the forum that day. And I walk out as they're announcing the lineup. And all you hear is the announcer say the first part of the number for Patrick. And he goes, numero trente. And and you couldn't even hear him finish the, the number. You couldn't hear anything else. And for two minutes, the building was absolute mayhem. I was standing maybe 15, 20 feet from all the people that were just at the edge of the tunnel. You couldn't differentiate where sound was coming from. You couldn't tell who was screaming. The play, and the announcer's talking, couldn't hear him. The place was absolute madness. Shots on goal were something like 61 to 15 against the Canadians. And the Canadians won five to two. And I remember watching that and everybody on the Canadians, including Patrick Waugh, they're just outside themselves with the energy of the building. And then you look the other way and there's Boston and they're trying everything they can 61 shots on that. And it just won't go in and they can't win. (laughs) And I'm just like, Oh my goodness. Like 
here's something to be a part of this, where there's a group against all odds. Um, and there's others that have been against further, more significant odds. But here's a group that overcame what they had in a way that united 18 plus thousand fans within the forum that night, let alone who else is watching on TV. And it was incredible, unbelievable to, uh, to be a part of that. And I was hooked. I was a student. It was back in, you know, 94. They'd won in, uh, in 93. And, and this was the year after they won. And I was like, I want this. And that was it. I didn't even think about opening my own business at that point. I just wanted to get connected to a team and get going. That's cool. You came back to Concordia after your time in Toronto um, to take the position as the strength coach at Concordia. And... Um, I know because I have some firsthand connection to that, that the first year or so that you were in that was a bit of a struggle with you and uh, Ron working together. What, what did you have to overcome and how did you, how did you guys find a, a place where you could work together and you really continue to grow in that position? Well, quite simply, communication is one of the key. It's a cornerstone of, of anything you're doing. It doesn't matter if if you're an employee, if you're the you know the person coaching a team, whatever it is. And and I probably didn't learn quick enough the ability to communicate and figure out what the roles were, understanding what needed to be done. And um, that was a, a wake up call for for me to just be like, oh, hold on a minute here. You know, maybe the way I see the world isn't exactly the way the world is. Um, and I have since learned that one of the key parts of, of managing and, and leading and, and any element of that for any level, I don't care how you know, small or large the company organization or, or you know, country is, you have to be able to sit back, look at what you think you want to do and say, okay, I think this, I've researched it, I'm looking at it. What if what I think and the way I see this is wrong? And challenge it. And have people around you that are willing to say, ah, okay, here, here's the cold hard facts. This is my opinion. This is my belief. You have to be able to sit back and challenge what you say and look at it and say, what if I'm wrong with the way I'm looking at this? It may turn out that you answer all the questions and it isn't wrong and you move forward, but you have to have that counterpoint. The ability to reflect and grow and allow and have be confident enough to allow people around you to give you feedback that at times it might be tough. You need it. It has mm -hmm. to happen. And you have to be confident enough for it. Awesome. Um, I know you find yourself uh, growing in that role. You did some teaching while you were at Concordia. What was that uh, experience like where you had to headman a, a class and run a course and stuff? Well, it's interesting to reflect back on that time because I haven't taught anything at a university level or, or a structured class in a number of years. And wow, do I miss it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm essentially in an environment where it's, you know, you're in a box, you're in a small area with, uh, you know, only a, a few amount of people relative to the population and um, the ability to share knowledge and get people to sort of see enlightenment in what they what they like to uh, get connected to people's passions and and help them grow and explore it uh, is something I miss and I cherish from from that time. Um, actually, it might be something that you told me a while back. Is you know you don't have to follow my path. You got to find your own path through this whole world, and uh, that helping be a part of watching people go through that exploration and that learning, uh, man, there's nothing better. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe one day I'll get back and, you know, maybe do a few more lectures or, or you know, teach a little bit or something like that. But um, I miss it. It was an amazing time. Um, I also learned a lot at the time as well about the way I saw things. And this goes back to really challenging, you know, is what I believe correct. And um, there was some feedback on things I thought I was doing real well. And you turn around, and you go, "Holy jeez, I might not really be good at this." And then you have to, you have to turn around and you know buckle down and figure out what it is to get better. So then you uh, you move on to uh, New York to become a ranger, and um, what was that um, initiation moment for you like when you first uh, like what was the perspective going in, and then the perspective when you finally landed in the space that maybe was different than what you perceived it to be. Uh, I had the benefit of understanding the landscape, I guess. I, I had a, um, and I was fortunate enough that you kind of shared with me the reality of pro sport. Um, 
basically what's the timeline of the day? How do things happen? Uh, that two and a half hours people are watching a game, that's not what it's all about. That alarm goes off at 4.30 and you're not getting to sleep until one in the morning and usually it's three or four in the morning if it's a road game. So it's uh, long hours, long days, but incredibly rewarding um, and you're working with some amazing people. So even though I understood the landscape, walking in the room with the people that were playing the game at that time was incredibly surreal. And I was coming in as the strength coach. I was the so-called expert in strength and conditioning with the team. Uh, and I was in front of some athletes that had played the sport for 20 plus years and um, won the Stanley Cup and been all-stars and have since become inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I was apparently to there to tell them how to train. So <laughs> it's incredibly <laughs> humbling. And um, you learn very quickly that uh, one of the key things is to listen. You just need to listen. And if you walk into a room and you're the loudest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. And you, you just need to be able to step back. Um, I learned the, the humility of listening, of um, just trying to be a sponge, learn how people got better in the game from what they did off the ice, as opposed to, you know, look, we just want to become the best athlete, bigger, faster, stronger. Uh, in hockey, it's not about that. In hockey, it's about how do we use this environment in the off-ice area to improve the performance on the ice. And in some guys, that's doing a lot. Some guys, that's doing a little. In some guys, it's lifting a lot. In some guys, it's more speed. So um, it was really sort of a humbling experience into, all right, what am I really going to do here? And I need to really soak this up and learn and listen a lot more than, than I'm going to talk. How have you grown in that position over the last, it's now about 15 years that you've been there. Maybe, you know, if you go back and you look at it in sort of thirds of, you know, five year blocks, what, what was Reg Grant in the first five years compared to the middle to compared to now and how you do your job and what, you know, how you reflect back on how you've changed. Well, it's an interesting time because, um, Basically, I've learned more of a confidence in the things that I'm doing, and I've been fortunate enough through a lot, seeing a lot of different athletes, to learn how some incredibly successful um, Hall of Fame players uh, have performed and, and prepared themselves. And so, you know, I've kind of learned academically as well as on the ground, and now I'm able to turn around and apply that um, to some, you know, really young, energetic new players that are in the game today. So um, I guess I've, I kind of feel lucky and very fortunate that I'm able to you know, bridge that gap between you know, what that scholastic scientific evidence is that I brought in that I've learned since um, with the on the ground learning of, you know what, even though this, whatever technique it is, is in the textbook and it says this is the best thing to do when you get on the ground with a guy that's played 10 plus years in the league, doesn't always apply the same way. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, even if you look at certain rest periods and different things and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of athletes that, you know, are traveling or have children and are dealing with different stresses, you learn that there's a holistic approach to the athlete that you need to take. And as much as this game is, or any game for that matter, is statistics and numbers and analytics, at the end of the day, the biggest growth point is this is a human sport. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of driven, driven home to me a lot more recently. And that's because in the last four to five years or so, there's an explosion in the analytics field. Measure everything you possibly can. And at the end of the day, that person, that one player, is a human being and he needs to walk in the room and be confident and understand what he's doing and interact with his peers and foremost with his family. And if you don't understand that and appreciate that, you just won't get the performance no matter how good the technique is, no matter how expensive the force plate is, no matter any of those things, this game is between the ears. Talk, talk a little bit about that whole technological revolution. You've really been in the middle of the genesis of that from a lot of different perspectives. I actually remember you showing me the first uh, iPod that uh, ever existed. I remember you were an uh, ado early adopter of that technology. And then you, you obviously have always had a technological interest. So in some ways you've been in the league during a time where it, your affinity for that actually connects with what's going on. But I, I have a feeling you have, you know, mixed feelings about all of that and what it is. So what is, what is good about it and what is bad about it in your viewpoint and what is misunderstood about it? Hmm. 
Well, that's a, there can be a big answer to that one. Well, um, we're here in a podcast. That's what it's for, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the one thing that I, that I have experienced in the, the growth or, or the, the explosion of this entire technological so-called revolution, because there always seems to be technology, it's just different for the time, um, is that a lot of people at different levels felt the need to get in the game. They didn't know why. They just saw other people doing it. So it's kind of like keeping up with the Joneses. And all of a sudden they're like, well, hold on. This guy has this, you know, accelerometer, or this different type of techni- technology, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is. And we need to get in the game and we need to do it. We don't know why we need to do it. We just need to do it. We don't know what we're going to do with the numbers, but we need to collect it because one day down the road somewhere, hopefully the numbers will become relevant. And if you go down that path, very quickly you realize you just have massive amounts of data and you're just stuck and buried in a ton of different things. Um, What is success to some degree through this? Hopefully it's learning as we go through it because I certainly have put myself in a position at certain times where – I really thought I was, you know, moving along the right path and let's collect this kind of stuff and, and we need to understand it and we need to look at all the different G-forces that are hitting the body in different games and circumstances. And um, then it gets to the point where it's like, you know what, we just have too much. Mm. And so when I talk about the growth and, you, you, you know, you were saying over the, you know, different blocks of time, how, is, how things evolved and where has that growth been? It's understanding that no matter what's involved, all these different things that come along, we need to limit to some degree what we're measuring to the point that we understand why we're measuring it. And more precisely, can we act upon it effectively? And then even more, is it the right thing to act upon? Because even if you have certain things that are out there, you know, you may have the ability to measure it. It may seem relevant, but in hockey specifically, nobody knows what the right metric is. They just don't. If we knew we'd all be doing it. We're all trying to find our way through this entire thing. So I think the explosion of technology and the growth to the point I'm at now has taught me to be a little more reserved in my early adoption. (laughs) (laughs) I'm one of the early adopters of different technology. As you say, I did have that brick of an iPod back then. Um, But it's just taught me to be a little more reserved in it, talk to a few more people, figure out what, instead of what are all the things we can measure effectively, what is the most effective thing to measure? And mm-hmm. so I've, I've learned to maybe stop a little bit more and evaluate and think before, I've, before I'm going to act. Awesome. So you meet this uh, lovely lady named Natalie, and then you pr- proceed to have th- three girls. Tell me yep. about the process of becoming a dad and uh, what that meant to you the, on, when you first became a dad and then how you've grown in your, your role as a father. Wow. Well, it puts life into perspective. And, and there's no way to tell anybody that's about to have a child or, or that doesn't have one what that means. Um, but life certainly uh, takes on a significant more meaning. Um, there's a lot of hours and there's a lot of challenges in the, in the different jobs that, that, you know, we do as parents and um, we just tend to do them uh, and not really be as concerned with the sacrifice of sorts because, you know, it's a, it's for, it's for a bigger purpose, frankly. Um, when we take care of ourselves and, and our relationships and, and the kids that, that we have, it's, uh, I don't even know how to describe it to somebody that doesn't have children, but there's nothing better. Um, to see a little person come into this world and you're just like, holy geez, you know, I do all this stuff. I try and control all these things, measure all these things, get all these people to perform better and do all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden you're like, what team do I work for? What's happening? What's, and, and everything is gone. Everything just goes away. And you're just completely captivated by the moment. Um, you know, and then there's the point where, you know, they, they basically say, thank you for being at the hospital, they send you home and then you try and figure out how to swim in the deep end with, <laughs> with, the, with the babies and stuff. But, um, it, you know, I would say one of the things that is absolutely critical and, and there's no way to really figure out how it's going to work because children affect people differently. Um, my wife, Nat, is, is a saint with everything that happens. And um, 
I'm able to do what I do and travel the way I can travel and um, be away from the home because she looks after the kids and, and creates that environment where they're safe and they're loved and, and they can grow and they can learn and explore and do, do all those kinds of things. You can't do what we do effectively, um, whether there is a balance or not. You just can't do it effectively without a partner that's able to, to help you through that process. And um, I, I would say that we've had three children. Um, and the, the first two, uh, it was, I don't know if it was all scripted. We, we thought, you know, okay, we know what's going on here. We're, we're great. We're parents of two kids. We got this figured out. Oh man, you never, you never have it figured out. <laughs> Be humble, step back and, and, and have a, a, what would you say? A piece of humble pie, so to speak. Um, when our third came along, there's, you know, different types of things that happen. And all of a sudden you just, holy Jesus, life ever is life ever special and precious. And, um, everybody goes through different types of challenges and things with their family and their friends and in a different way. And, and having kids kind of brought us around to the reality, this now Nat and I to the reality of, you know, what, how we really value life. And, and it's, I don't know, it's hard to describe. Um, but now it's in, in a spot where, um, you know, I, later on today, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to drive home and it doesn't matter how long I'm driving. It doesn't matter, you know, how many thousands upon thousands of people are in the tri-state area out here, just outside of New York city. I like I'll drive that and do that all the time to, to help support them and, and, you know, get back to them. And, um, yeah, it's an amazing thing being a dad, I tell you that, but, but I would say that in my growth, and this goes back to, it's been, I'm entering my 17th season now. I guess just means I'm old. I don't know, but <laughs> I'm entering my 17th season. And, um, and I can tell you that as people grow and start this profession and, and, and get older in this profession, I think you need to take care of three general things as you become, you know, more, more engrossed in a, in a family connection. And first and foremost, you have to take care of yourself. You have to look after yourself and understand what that personal human health is. Um, you have to look after your, your wife and your relationship and, and make that an absolute priority. Uh, and then your kids extend from there. And if you're not good with yourself, you're not going to be good with anybody. And if you don't have a strong relationship, the kids are going to, you know, see that and everyone around you is going to see that. And if you can't take those first two and, and really put the time into your kids and, and maybe it's not always time in, you know, quantity, absolute quantity, but hopefully the quality can be there when you are there. Um, when those three things are there, you got a good basis for a for a solid outlook on wherever life takes you and whatever the career is. That's uh, awesome advice. I'm going to use that uh, to pivot and and give you your purpose statement. From uh, <laughs> I assume having listened to a couple of the podcasts, you know what's coming. Yeah. You're a Pisces too, so uh, your purpose is to harness your excessive compassion and learn how to say no and set boundaries so that you can experience intimacy without fear and allow your creativity to blossom. Many a man fails to become a great thinker only because his memory is too good. Frederick Nietzsche. Pisces twos need to learn how to empty themselves and let go of the past. Their memories are strong, and so their anger and fear of abandonment. They have had to learn how to nurture themselves and stand on their own two feet. They yearn for a soulmate either because they have never had the intimacy and closeness they desire or because they have once felt very connected to someone and are eager to experience that again. Either way, they need to know that being on the earth means living with divine discontent. Nothing will ever be perfect. Wow. <laughs> I've known you for a while, Scotty, and you've always talked about this kind of thing. And I've been like, eh, all right, okay. And we'll be on to another topic. I, you delve into it much more than I do. Um, <laughs> I read that and knowing you as well as I do, uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty spot on for a guy who's, uh, you searched for a long time to find your gnat. And I think your last, the last little piece here uh, confirms that I think you found that, that person in, in her and you've become the dad you wanted to be, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that actually, that hit the mark pretty good. I'm not sure what else is in that book, but that part works. <laughs> You know, you, who, one of your parallel characters uh, in life is Dr. Seuss. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, my kids will love that. There you go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So well, you, 
you know, when you hear that sort of stuff and, and, you know, I know that family means a lot to you. Are, are you satisfied with, with where you are in your 17th year with how you balance your, I mean, nobody is ever really satisfied, but do you feel you've, you've reached a place where you have a good balance between what it is you, you do professionally, what it is you do personally? I don't know if you'll, if I will ever get to a point where I sit back and say, yeah, that I, I feel total balance in this. I, I just don't know if that's possible. Um, I'd love to get there. Um, I keep working towards it. I keep finding myself in a, in a hotel room in some city, just trying to figure out the balance, but, um, I don't know if it'll ever happen. Um, I just know that I'm going to keep trying. What do you think's your, your biggest Achilles heel? Well, you mentioned the the part about, um, learning to say no in, in that excerpt that you had before, (laughs) um, I have, I think I have a tendency sometimes to try and, um, get everybody to be positive in a certain situation that's there. And, um, there are times where you don't need to be hard always, but sometimes you got to step up and be pretty hard with the situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I have a tendency maybe to, um, you know, to not say no, to take on, uh, too many things and, and want to please people and get things, get things working and have all the guys around, you know, in a positive, uh, positive way. Um, and sometimes the cold, hard reality of, uh, where the situation is, what it dictates and requires that needs to be relayed. Um, and I think maybe that's more of a, a lifelong learning thing for me of, um, you know, I, I want people to be better. I want people to, uh, find something that is beyond where they thought they could be, where they thought they could do. Uh, and there's different ways to get there. Um, I've always sort of been on more of the camp of getting somebody in a, uh, a situation where, you know what, they're, they're empowered, they're feeling good about it. And, um, Maybe that's my learning curve. I got to walk in the door and give them the whole cold, hard facts and say, hey, you know what? That's not good enough. And we got to move on and we got to get better. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if that helps, but that's <laughs> no. not I be a little harder at times. Tell me about um, the experience. I talked to Jerry Ramajita about winning a Super Bowl. I talked to Mike Boyle today about winning a World Series you were on the other side of that stick in the Stanley cup finals and it's not always an easy cross to bear, but what did you learn from that experience going all the way to the pinnacle and maybe not having it work out the way you'd hoped? How fleeting a situation is no matter what it is. And whenever you get somewhere where it's that close, the price for success and the things you have to give are immeasurable and you need to give them. And there are some times when, even when you give all of those things, uh, no one will ever know in the situation that, that I was fortunate enough to be involved in, um, all the different challenges that existed behind the scenes, that's sort of private and within the, within the family of the team, so to speak. Um, and sometimes when you give everything, when every guy that's on that ice surface, on the field, in that element arena of competition, when every single one of them gives everything they have, sometimes it's just not enough. And the puck bounces, the ball bounces, everything just kind of bounces a different way. Um, and I don't know the answer. Uh, I know that every single one of those guys in that room gave everything they had. And, and I was you know, I, I kind of saw a certain side of that being behind the curtain. Um, it was not for a lack of trying and not for lack of wanting, not for a lack of absolute commitment and devotion to the game and the success they were searching for. That was all there and it still didn't work out. And for the life. Correctly, um, it doesn't work out. And you have to learn to hopefully learn what was happening, gain knowledge from the, the situation, the experience you went through, um, appreciate it, respect it, uh, and then get back on the horse and get after it again. That's um, it's tough. Uh, mm-hmm. I got to tell you that. And, and it was tough from the role I was in. I, I can't even imagine what it was like, even though I've had the conversations with some of the players and, I can't imagine what it's like from their perspective. And um, hopefully I have the, the, the humility and I'm humble enough to understand that um, I'll never know. And that's okay. 
you don't know those things unless you are the individual on the ice on the that athlete in that element of competition and from our field from the people that that we are all colleagues uh, of and um you know, it doesn't matter where you're, whether you're at the bottom of a hill cheering somebody on, whether you're, you know, at the Super Bowl or wherever you are. We all try and give everybody as much uh, help and insight as we can and support as we can. Um, we have to understand that no matter what, this is their their element and they understand it. And I was listening to uh, uh, your talk with, with Matt and um, it was so true that I've never been through Olympic cycles. That's not my, not my area, but... Um, can't even imagine what it's like for an athlete that spends that many hours and that many years preparing and, and going through it. And as support staff, maybe we attend a few Olympics. Maybe we go to many different things. That athlete might go to one. We have to be humble enough and understand where that is and what that is and who those people are. Anyway, I don't know if that's a ramble, but that's... <laughs> no, it's fantastic. What was, um, you know, you've worked you've worked side by side by... Um with one of the guys uh, as an a- head athletic therapist um, who's been in the league for, I-, I think, close to 30 or more years now, Jim Ramsey. And what, what's one of the biggest things you've learned from him about, um, about that world? Everything's going to work out. Be calm. Um, don't get too up or too down. Uh, everything is going to work out. And uh, it's a, you know, for those that don't know him, I, I'm not sure who calls him Jim, but we all call him Rammer. <laughs> he, uh, he has seen a lot, been around a lot of guys, um, and, you know, been at this a long time. And I, I would hazard a guess that um, when push comes to shove and it's absolute chaos, he's one of the better guys in the game, and if not the best out there for managing that absolute chaotic environment in, in front of eighteen to 20,000 people when somebody goes down with you know, something minor or something absolutely major. So um, it's, it's an interesting thing to see that calmness under pressure. And, um, you know, not that everybody is calm all the time. It, it's not possible. But, um, man, oh, man, when it's in that kind of pressure environment and you're dealing with guys that have, you know, it's their livelihood, um, watching that happen and seeing that calm under fire is, is pretty impressive. And I've been fortunate enough to, to learn it and be a part of it and actually kind of experience that firsthand cool what are a couple of or even just one uh, what you call performance habits in your life that really allow you to be the best you can be when you go into work every day or into your relationship with your kids wow completely an evolving uh answer i would say um it's evolved over a, a lot of time i think that um when i'm at my best my schedule is consistent um and i don't know if this sounds corny or not but it's it's really based around sleep food and movement so if if those three things are there um then it's it's right on and um interestingly enough i went through uh, my own personal time where, you know, I kind of struggle with the different challenges of, you know, when we travel and the food that's available and for anyone that's, that's been involved in, in professional sports, probably at any, any sport, doesn't really matter. Food is plentiful. The uh, ability to get what you need when you need it, it's all over the place for these guys. They, there is no shortage of resource uh, applied uh, most of the time for, for these situations. And um, I went through a, a situation where I, I actually got the flu. Um, and I had a fever of about, uh, over a hundred for six days. Not that that's a, a serious medical emergency at all, but, um, I really ate one meal in six days and I wouldn't recommend this as some kind of fasting or purging, but it happened and it completely shifted everything in, in what I consume and why and how and all that stuff. And it was just, it's an amazing thing to me to have learned the academic side the theoretical side and then to actually be a living person within me um you know waking up day seven eight nine ten whatever after that experience and just you know sugar everything was all purged out of my system and i was like i just feel different Mm -hmm. you know and now the different cravings and things and whatever it's all different everyone goes through their life and their experiences differently but um being able to uh to manage sleep manage food and the way we move those are the three kind of pillars about it very cool if you were to uh run into the reg grant uh that sort of came back to concordia 
to start working as a strength coach, what would you say to that guy? <laughs> I don't have enough time to tell you that. Um, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, probably to be more aware of, of your surroundings. Um, instead of existing in a world that, that appeared to be a certain way that I, that I thought was a certain way, um, be more aware of it, ask more questions and just pay attention. Uh, I think that might be the, uh, the cornerstone of it. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing, learning, looking back and going, how did I get through those different types of situations? And, and then looking back going, I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I, I was, thought I knew all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know much. I just didn't have any idea. <laughs> yeah. Which is, uh, very humbling to say the least. So, to uh, be more aware. So last question, you, um, you will perish from this earth one day, hopefully not for a long time. Well, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, may, mainly it's hopefully being some sort of uh, support structure, caring about the people that I've been around um, and being in some way um, a supportive or uplifting presence or force uh, within their development and their growth. Uh, I, I just hope in some way that I'm able to give to situations as opposed to take from them. Um, uh, this world is really complex at times. And the reality of it is it is incredibly simple when you pull all that stuff away, all the different noise that's out there. Uh, I think there's uh, there's a famous quote that sits on a head coach's desk in, in some football city that says, uh, ignore the noise. And um, sometimes you just got to find the calm in things. And um, hopefully I'm able to do that and, and impart a little bit on people's lives that makes them better. Very cool. Well, sir, thank you very much for taking the time with me today. It's been, uh, been cool to ramble through the history of uh, Reggie Grant, even though I knew some of it, it's always good to hear the other. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you, that you, that you, pulled back the curtain and decided to tell the world at large all these different things. But that's all right. Everyone has challenges and things they go through. It's you want to be on my podcast. That's where you get to go, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking technical. We're talking real life. That's exactly it. Well, I must say, I, I just, I hope this continues for a long time. And um, the last, uh, the last week or two weeks, I've, uh, I've been listening to podcast after podcast in the car. I spend a lot of time in the car and it certainly is uh, enlightening to listen to people, um, hear perspectives of people. And um, at the end of the day, we tend to get into professions after a period of time that might seem mythical or hard to be. Everyone's like, how do I get there? There's only so many jobs in, you know, this type of entertainment field and this pro sport field. And we're all real people with real challenges that everyone is, fi is fighting a way through. And there's no myth to it. There's no secret to it. Um, if we're at conferences and you see us and, and, you know, we're talking with a bunch of guys and all of a sudden we are the old people, um, you know, just don't be shy, have a conversation, come up, introduce yourselves. We, for the most part, I would say, are a community of people that have been at this for a while that are ecstatic and more than willing to share the information that we've gained and hopefully help people in some way. So um, I don't know if that helps, but maybe I'll meet somebody along the way and it'll be a part of that process. Great message, my friend. Thank you for that. Well, thank Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.